0: Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoyed it. I grew up in a very churched family. Many of you guys know this. Uh, Some of you might not know that from a very early Age. In fact, some of my earliest memories are of church or my church family growing up. Whether it was trips or Easter egg hunts, or whether it was my Sunday school teachers and felt boards. And if you are my age, you're a big fan of felt boards. I don't care what you say. They were they were the best ever. Uh, it was much better than having to read it straight out of scripture. But the the felt boards, if, if if you grew up like I did, you know that there's a kind of a warmth to that, um, that there's uh, something that's really, I don't know, uh, uh, connecting, that connects you to a, deeper, to a deeper feel and a deeper sense and a, and a deeper community, and I, I have that. My parents were so involved in church that they had uh, volunteer positions in the church that really nowadays are paid staff, but back in the 70s, they weren't paid. They just did it. They were the youth pastors, ministers, whatever you want to call it. Uh, All of my, as a kid, some of my earliest memories are hanging out with youth when I was just a a little, little guy. So all of my life I was plugged into church. I knew every answer. If If there was a test on the Bible or if there was a felt board test, I would nail it. Like I was the kid that always knew every character on that felt board and what was about to happen next. And so... Some of you are like, what is this felt board? What are you talking about? I should have pulled up a picture so that you would, that you would uh, be able to experience it. In fact, I don't know, if, if you're an old timer here, you know that we actually did a series called the Felt Board Series. Do y'all remember that? Anybody remember that? Okay, we got two. All right, so we did a series. Base, do you remember it, Brenda? Yeah, vaguely, so uh, so anyway, we did a whole series, a felt board series, where we would put up the felt board figures of whoever we were talking about that day. Um, it was fun times, but anyway, back to the thing, was I grew up with all of that knowledge and all that background, and it didn't really mean anything to me. I mean, it did, but it was just a part of my life, it was just something we did, it was just... It was the culture I was in. It was what my family gave to me and said, this is what we're gonna do. It wasn't something that I owned. I knew that it was good, and I knew that I found joy in it, but it wasn't something that I owned. It wasn't mine. Today we're gonna continue the story of David. And we're going to look at the beginning cracks in David's personhood. We're starting to see some little tension in his life and in his decisions. We're going to see that David indeed is humid. And that some of this stuff, for him, hasn't come home completely. It's not... Full for him. He doesn't own it. So we're going to look at 2 Samuel 6, and we're going to kind of walk through the whole chapter there. It's verses 1 through 23, but we're not going to go over every chapter. Last, I mean, every verse. Last week, I talked about the fact that David uh, defeated the Philistines not once, but twice, and that they pushed the Philistines west. And as they pushed the Philistines west, they captured area where the ark had been, the ark of the covenant had been resting. It had found its resting place. So we're going to pick up the story there in 2 Samuel 6 verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. So 30,000 fighting men. The chosen men were like their Marine Corps. They were the guys that you wanted first line. They They were professional warriors. And David arose with these 30,000 men and went with all the people who were with him, all the people being the men, to Baal-Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called, get this, by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. That's the whole title of the, of the ark. That whole, that whole thing there. Not just the ark of the Lord, but that whole thing is the full name of the ark of the covenant. The name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, does anybody know why that's the full name? It's because it was believed that the very presence of God resided between the angel, the tips of the angel wings on the, on the top throne seat of the Ark of the Covenant. That in that section, it's just very small width apart. There's wings that come in. Has anybody ever seen Indiana Jones? Right. So the Ark of the Covenant, the wings coming in. it's believed by the Israelites that the very presence of God resides between the two angel wings. The mercy seat. It's the place where God is present on earth. This is a powerful thing for the Israelites. It's not only the Ten Commandments. That's what the Ark of the Covenant is. It's, It's the Ten Commandments encased in this box that has got gold and all sorts of stuff on it. It's beautiful. And the Ten Commandments are in there. This is God's covenant to the people of Israel. So not only is it special because of that, but it's special because it's believed it's the power of God. It's the truth of God and the power of God. This isn't just some little artifact. This is the very presence of God. And David finally wants to do something about it. David says, enough. It hasn't belonged to us, so we're going to get it. And so they go and they get the ark, verse 3, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Why would it be new, not rhetorical? Why a new cart? Alright, all right. so it's been sitting so long yet weathered, there's, so there's not a cart there. That's the, the first cart that brought it there is no longer there. What else? Why a new cart? What are carts used for in their culture? Transporting huh? Valuable goods, but not only valuable goods, also everyday goods. Things like hay and things like slaughtered animals and things like I mean, anything. It was their mode of getting things from point A to point B. So if they had a load of anything, they would put it on a cart and take it. Well, that cart then is unclean ceremonially. So they get a new cart. David gets this new cart, puts the Ark of the Covenant on it because he doesn't want an unclean cart that's been ceremonially unclean. And brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And one of the sons went before it. Does anybody know why this is problematic? It's on a hill. That is a problem if it's on a hill and they're bringing it down on a cart. Although that might actually make it easy too. Bingo. There were very specific instructions about how to carry the ark. You know what it didn't include? A cart. It didn't include a new cart. It didn't include... Two people standing on either side of it or in front and behind it. It didn't, it, it was very detailed how it was supposed to be carried. And this wasn't it. David, for all the good that he's done so far, decides to take the shortcut. The easy road. The, ah, oh, God will overlook this little thing. That's a minor detail, Right? Let's just roll with it, literally. We're going to take this thing and go down the mountain. Everything's going to be okay and it's all right. And David, verse 5, and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and they were dancing and singing. And as they got close to the threshing floor in a certain city, one of the oxen tripped. And as the oxen stumbled, the ark shifted, and when the ark shifted, Uzzah, one of the sons, reached out to steady it, and he died. Now, it's easy to look at this and go, golly, that's pretty mean-spirited. God, I mean, come on now. The dude was trying to protect it from falling. But there were very clear boundaries. There was very clear direction, and David ignored it. And by the way, these two sons, who had lived with the ark in their presence for twenty plus years now, they knew, they knew all about the ark. In fact, some believe that they might have been part of uh, of the priestly class at some level. They would have known specifically that this is not how it's supposed to go. They too accepted this shortcut and they were like, you know what, we don't think God's going to do that, so we're okay, we're just going to go with it this way. I think this is a shot across not only David's bow, but Israel's bow. Look, just because you have defeated the Philistines, just because I've helped you gain control of this area, just because I have blessed you and been with you, doesn't mean you get to be disobedient. And it doesn't mean that you get the shortcut. Too often we get so comfortable with God we begin to take his grace for granted. We get so comfortable with God that we forget that he is holy. And that's what we're seeing in David's life here and in the life of these men with him. And David gets mad. Verse 8, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Verse 9, but David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of, Lord, of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. And what is the city of David? What's that city? Jerusalem. But it's not named Jerusalem yet, is it? It's just the city of David. Hold on to that thought. So David, being afraid, said, I'm not going to take it in. I'm going to take it instead to Obed-Edom, the Gittite, which was a Levite, the priestly class. This guy will know what to do with it. I don't want to do anything with this ark anymore because I'm scared of God and I'm mad at him for doing this. He's mad at God for doing exactly what God said he would do if someone touched the ark. Just as an aside, how how many times do we get mad at God and it's really not his fault, it's ours? We're the ones who put ourselves in that position. We're the ones who chose wrongly. We're the ones who made our bed and now we have to sleep in it, as my mom used to like to say to me. She said it to the other two more than me though. <laughs> Just because I was sneaky. And the ark of the Lord remained, verse 11, at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told, David, King, to, the, uh, told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So, David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So, what was David's motive? I heard glory for himself. He wants to be blessed. All right, same thing. Yeah, so we see that David... Even after seeing what happens when he's disobedient disobedient to God, even after the shot across his bow, his motives still aren't one hundred percent pure here, are they? So here's what I love about David. David is me. I'm the I'm the guy that messes things up. I'm the guy who makes bad decisions. I'm the guy who has bad motives are not 100% unselfish motives. I can relate to David. If I'm looking at this and I'm like, okay, well, my intention was to bring it to my house, all, I mean, to, to my city all along, and I'm looking over here and this guy's getting blessed. Okay, this is a sign for me to go and get it. And that's exactly what David does. And so they go again to get it. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom, To the city of David with rejoicing and when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal and David danced before the Lord with all his might and David was wearing a linen ephod so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn what we'll find out later is that they brought it up the right way They got the poles they were supposed to get, they put them into slots on the ark, and they hand-carried the ark the rest of the way to the city of David. But David goes before the ark dancing and glorifying God. What's interesting is what he's wearing here. Verse 14, what's it say he wears? An ephod. Does anybody know what that is? Well, it's not an undergarment. It's a priestly garment. It's a priestly garment. So David is, we know, king, but now he has put on this priestly garment. What he is saying is that I am both king and priest. Who who else was that? Jesus. This is a foreshadowing to Jesus. David is a type of Jesus. He goes before in this linen ephod dancing and shouting and praising God. And as the ark of the Lord, verse 16, came into the city of David, Michal, and who is that? David's wife, but who else is she? Saul's daughter. Saul, the one that David took over from. Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord, and they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And so, this time, we see that David has put a lot of thought into how this is going to transpire, what he's going to do. And we know that because there's a burnt offering at the beginning and a burnt offering at the end. That's planned out. We know because he's traveled with it now with the poles in with it on the people's shoulder going before in the city and those people who carried it had to be Levites. We know that there was forethought because when they got to Jerusalem or this point, the city of David, there was a tent already prepared and that tent would have more than likely been a replica of the tabernacle that was in the wilderness. And if I've lost you on all this, that's okay. Just know that there was a lot of forethought in this and that David was trying to do everything the exact right way. He learned from his mistake, which is, I think, one of the points that we can make today. Yes, David is human, and yes, David has mixed motives, but he learns from his mistakes. He says, you know what? I messed up, and I get that. My motives aren't always pure, but I know God's a God who forgives and loves. I'm going to Take what I've learned from my mistakes, and I'm going to apply it to my life in a new way. Guys, we're all going to fail. We're going to all have motives that aren't exactly pure. We're all going to stumble and fall. The point here is that when we do, are we willing to admit it and learn from it? Are we willing to say to ourselves, okay, yeah, God, I know I was angry at you for killing that dude, but that's on me. I'm sorry. I want to change that. And he shows that over and over and over again in this section on how he's reacting with the ark. He's showing that he has learned from his mistakes and that he's leaning on God and saying, God, I blew it, I want to learn from my mistakes, and I want to be better. And as he dances into the city celebrating his first wife, and yes, he has many wives by this, by this point, Michal sees him and is offended. She's mad. Verse 18, and when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat from the offering, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. What's interesting about this whole scene is that it is precisely the liturgy, the movements for an enthronement of a king. Everything done, offering, celebration, music, dancing, enthronement of this ark, giving out food, baking cakes and raising cakes and handing them out and blessing the people, that is all part of an, an enthronement ceremony And we know that from other parts of Scripture and from the culture that they were in. But here's the question. Who's being enthroned? Who's being enthroned here? It's not David. It's God. David, learning from his mistakes... Realizes, hey, I might have the title, but I'm not the king. There is only one the king, and that the king's very presence is on the ark. So we're going to enthrone the ark, and it's Yahweh who is the king over this country. This whole scene is a reminder that David, again, learned from his mistakes and said, I can't do this on my own. This is not about me, and I am not really the king. I might have the title, but the one that's enthroned is Christ. In our view, in his view, Yahweh. So, what does that mean for us? I think it means that God's calling us to allow him to sit on the throne of our lives. All too often, We don't learn from our mistakes and we continue to put ourselves on the throne. We celebrate self and everything that we can get out of this life. We eke all the comfort, we eke all of the selfishness and the pleasure that we can out of this life and it's all about us. But David here realizes that's not what it's about, it's about God. He needs to be the one enthroned, not me. And for us, more specifically, it's Christ. He needs to be enthroned. He's the one that was on the cross. He's the one that had the crown of thorns. He's the one that was the firstborn from resurrection. He's the one that is the king of the universe, not me. And therefore, he needs to be the king of my life. I've got to learn from my mistakes and enthrone him in my life. And that's what David does. But his wife didn't like it. Michal, the daughter of Saul, verse 20, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today. This is sarcasm if you hadn't picked up on it. Oh, how the king of Israel honored himself today. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his uh, servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. This word uncover means to reveal or to expose. Now, it sounds like he's exposing himself like, I I don't know, like the Scottish people did when they went to war. Lift up the kilts. That's not what he did. There are some people that believe that the exposure came as he danced frantically in worship. The problem is, is the ifad doesn't really... Make that a huge opportunity. That's a cloth that covers everything. What she's really upset about is that he's not acting very king like. Look at you. You're acting like a simple person, you're worshiping God in ways that not even the servants look at with dignity. You are undignified, you don't belong as king you're the king over my father? That's really what she's saying here. She, she's looking at him and saying, who are you worshiping God like that? What, what are you doing? You're the king. And David said, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father And above all your house or his house, to point me as prince over Israel. The people of the Lord and I will celebrate before the Lord. I don't care what anybody else says about me. I don't care what the world thinks about me. My one priority is to worship and celebrate God, to enthrone him in my life. And if it means I get made fun of, I get made fun of. If it means it's a little uncomfortable for me at times, I'm going to be uncomfortable. If it means people look at me and say, what are you thinking? That's okay, because it's not for you. I think this is a powerful portrait painted for us of what it looks like. To, yeah, not get it right all the time, but to learn from my mistakes and say, God, every time I try to run this thing, I, I mess it up. You need to be king. And if that means I don't look like the rest of the world, I'm okay with that. But here's the thing, guys. The world doesn't need more people that look like the world. The world needs more people that look like Jesus. The world needs more people that look like love and care and grace. The world needs more people who, who are willing to lovingly tell the truth. The world needs to see Jesus in action. And next week we're going to look at Jesus washing his disciples' feet. That's what the world needs. It needs more Jesus. It doesn't need more Todd. I can guarantee you that. What we have in our world is a desperate cry for help. And people are looking for that help through all sorts of things through drugs, through materialism, through relationships, through power and prestige, through diplomas that they have on their wall, through pats on the back from people around them. They're looking for it in all the wrong places because the only place they're gonna really see and experience the depth and the love and the truth of God Is when they see Christ. And they need more of Him, not more of you and me. I was in college. And I'd been going through a Bible study with a group of guys that I didn't want to go through, but I had to to be able to play basketball. Like, they didn't make me do it, but they said, look, if you're going to play basketball with us, we, we're, we get together once a week and we have this Bible study. And I'm like, oh, yay. Really? But I started going. And all the things that I would learned growing up and seeing my parents who were godly parents who loved the Lord and loved me It wasn't until I really started looking at scripture and what it meant and letting it seep in that God began to do a work in me that I'd never experienced before. And it was one night after I closed the Bible study stuff that I'd had and I put it aside and I'd finished reading the scripture for that night and I got on the side of my bed as a 20 year old and in tears, I said, I've known all this stuff God. But I've never put you on the throne. I've known all about you. Heck, I even love you. But I've never let you be the king. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.